Thanks for downloading show 74 of the C-Suite podcast that's being recorded at the CFA UK's conference in London, which is on the topic of behavioral finance in the age of algorithms. This is actually the second time we've partnered with CFA UK. We previously interviewed a number of uh, the speakers at their professionalism conference for show 66 of this series. So if you want to check back and listen to those, that would be great. But before you do that, we've got some great interviews lined up today. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and I'll be chatting with the speakers from today's event, which we hope will provide a real overview of the topics and issues being discussed. And to kick things off, I'm joined by today's keynote speaker, Marcus Schuler, founder and managing partner of Panthera Solutions. Marcus's talk is titled Human Ambiguity Tolerance Beats Artificial Intelligence. So let's start right there. You've written articles about a resistance within the investment industry for more advanced decision support systems in favor of the human investment decision maker. Uh, why is that the case? There's something called the mental immune system on an individual level. Actually, there's a large institute at the Harvard University focusing on that. And this not just uh, in our industry, in the asset management industry, but in general. So it protects us from uh, too fast, unintended change on an individual level. That's why the resistance to change is the default setting. And overcoming it is the exception especially for uh, professionals in uh, the asset industry, which per se rather come with uh, a strong ego, so a robust uh, picture of themselves, which for understandable reasons they need to have when uh, exposing themselves to market complexity on, on, on every day. And uh, therefore, that doesn't make it easier to overcome this resistance. And uh, as a consequence, you have to be precise when intervening because it becomes personal very fast. Knowledge management is well established in many other industries, but not in the asset management industry. So uh, the adaptation to uh, managing the knowledge within a team of investment professionals and also on an industry level is uh, not very well established. We still rather believe in uh, superstar managers, which hardly exist. And even if, then they rather have a strong team around them, challenging them, and a robust process that supports them. So, in terms of um, tools, you know, around artificial intelligence, is, is that a good thing for the in- investment industry? Though, surely that that's the case, isn't it? Well, it's neither nor. It's just part of a general digitalization of our societies, also okay. in the asset management industry. And then it's it's neutral. It's a technology, right? It's what you make of it. If you think it can replace us, well, we are far away from the point in the asset management industry. Can it support us to make more evidence-based decisions? Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, it's much faster and much more concise when it comes to fundamentally analyzing thousands of stocks at once. But can it uh, replace us when it comes to interpreting the data, um, uh, synthesizing qualitative and quantitative factors? No, it's not there yet. So coming back to the the title of your talk, how does an investor become more ambiguity tolerant? Well, ambiguity tolerance means that I maximize the contribution of intellect and reason to my investment decision, to any decision in a complex environment, but in our industry, to an investment decision. And that means that I need to first become more ambiguity tolerant, because through this tolerance, this 
particular brain region, it's getting maximized in its contribution to a decision. And uh, therefore, we need to start with the limbic system that manages, modulates our emotions, because thinking is a full body exercise. It's not just what's happening between our ears, but also how much adrenaline is in our veins and, and uh, how emotionally aroused we are as a consequence of that, which can actually be positively or negatively connotated. I can be super excited and happy, but I'm emotionally aroused, which is great for many areas of life with our partners, our kids, but not for investment decisions. Why is this such, you know, I mean, you're, you're here as the keynote speaker. Why is this such an, an important issue? Because if we are cognitively aroused, over aroused or under aroused, doesn't matter, yeah. um, we tend to become pro-cyclical in our investment decisions. So our instinct-based heuristics dominate, meaning we buy high and sell low, which is a shortcut into losing money. But do, do, so... Just going back to the AI question, though, in, will there come a time in the future where you know, the AI tools will eventually become a, a threat to the investment professional's role? I don't know. <laughs> Impossible to say? Or? Well, it's hard enough for me to, to know my limits as for anybody else, but yeah. that is clearly a limit. I don't know. Okay. Yeah? Are we there anytime near? Not uh, according to... Um, those uh, AI evangelists we talk to regularly to understand where they stand. Mm -hmm. And when it's in an environment where we have a static framework of rules and the rules are clearly defined, then the machine is already way better than we are, uh, also in the asset management industry. When uh, this framework of rules is dynamic and the rules themselves are rather blurry, so not properly defined, then the data you feed the machine with is just um, not not worth manipulating because the the outcome then might be accurate but accurately wrong it's about creating most evidence-based decisions and evidence unequals evidence just because it come up with a number it doesn't mean that your qualitative argument is weaker right it's about giving us this uh, this freedom to assess whether your evidence is stronger than my evidence. And that needs a choice architecture that builds a stable, robust framework within which this assessment can be done. Because otherwise, it gets personal very easily. And I'm insulted because you use a certain uh, wording or, or a certain notion of how you present your argument. So you better have all those bases covered and, and allow us together to complement each other's perspectives on capital markets. The issue is um, also with diversity. I mean, Me Too is, is, is great that it happens finally, right? But when it comes to diversity in teams, it's actually what you try to maximize is uh, cognitive diversity. If uh, we are socialized in a very similar way, no matter which gender, uh, ethnicity, age, but if we, if we have this uh, uh, very um, similar socialization, our perspective on the world is similar, right? So what we actually try to achieve in, a, in, in the composition of an investment comedy is complementary, uh, uh, a complementary team with their perspectives on capital markets. And then 
allowing them to, to properly express themselves through exchanging evidence in a, in a productive way, what's called peak productivity on an individual and team level. Okay. I know you've written a couple of blogs um, for the CFA uh, on this sort of topic area, so I'm sure um, if anyone searches on, on the CFA website, they can find those easily. But if they want more information about your business, where's the best place for them to go? Visit our website. It's uh, panthera.mc. That's fantastic. Marcus, thanks so much for uh, joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. So joining me now is Philippa Clough, who is a portfolio manager at JP Morgan Asset Management International Equity Group. Uh, Philippa is presenting later this afternoon, and her talk is titled Reflections from 20 Plus Years of Behavioral Finance Investing. I guess a good place to start, Philippa, is to understand how things have developed in that time. Yeah, certainly. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a delight. So where we are currently, uh, we're a team of 40 investors who use behavioral finance insights in order to determine how we direct our investment insights. We manage 50 billion of assets. And I think we really apply behavioral finance insights into two areas. So the first of those is things that we look at in stocks and think things that we sort of will impact um, how stocks are priced. And then the other part where we apply behavioral finance is to ourselves uh, and saying, well, if we think other people <laughs> are biased, it's probably quite likely that we're biased ourselves. And we try and think about ways to enable us to make more rational decisions. Now, as you mentioned, so the title is 20, plus, uh, 20 Years Insights. Mm. Well, we first launched our first fund in 1993 uh, back in the UK, and since then have expanded. And I was thinking, well, what... What has really changed in the way we think about investing and the, the way we have approached our process? And at the very core of it, not much. You know, we still look for behaviors and we still look for irrationality in markets and in our own decision-making process. But I suspect that if someone who'd been in the team 20 years ago and is in the team today, of which there are actually several, uh, there's one guy who's been at JP Morgan for 35 years wow. in our team, um, it's, it's quite a big transformation. Um, some of the core features of our team that we think are incredibly important are the fact that we have uh, quant and fundamental team members all sitting together, integrated and focusing on the same, uh, same projects, same tasks, same companies. Um, we have a lot of experience on our team and we also focus quite heavily on innovation. So trying to push ourselves to always be better and how to think through the way that we invest in the smartest way to deliver results to clients. Uh, I've got an example that I think might bring that to light yeah, a little sure. bit more um, and the way we think about behaviors and, and how we integrate it. And it's, it's looking at uh, earnings calls. Now, if you're an investor, you're going to be listening into and you cover a stock, you're thinking, okay, well, the company are using an earnings call in order to, to talk to their investors and say, this is how the company's going, and these are my expectations of how it's going to go in the future. And as, a, as an investor, you listen along there, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, company management are um, biased. They tend to be overly optimistic on their future prospects. So as an investor, how do you think about that information that's just come out about the, the company and the strategy? How do you, how do you balance that against your, the rest of your opportunity set? 
Well, one way to approach that is to say, I, you know, listen to lots of other ones so I get a, a, a base of comparison. Now, there are a lot of companies in the world. Um, just say in Europe alone, there are 2,000 that we consider investable. So as an analyst, listening to all 2,000 calls, which happen on a quarterly basis, it's going to take you two years <laughs> to get through yeah. that level of information. And so, which is obviously not feasible, especially if you have certain weeks, we have maybe like 100 in a week. Um, instead, what we've done is we've applied natural language processing techniques to automatically calculate the sentiment for an earnings call. So you can tell whether it's sort of positive and negative. And then you're able to direct investors to focus most of their time on the ones where the sentiment is particularly extreme relative to comparable companies and comparable industries. So it enables you to focus your time on where you think you're going to be able to gain the most insights that are going to be informative for future stock performance. You've kind of started to go on to what I wanted to ask you, actually, which was how, you know, with all that 20 years of learning, how we can make better decisions on a database basis. And I guess technology is a, is a key part of that then. Yeah, t- technology is is a very key part. We We invest a lot of time thinking about the best ways of doing things. Um, And there are different ways of of applying that. So the one that I just spoke about now is sort of what you look for in stocks, but taking it back now to looking, thinking about what I look for in myself. So I've definitely got a few uh, behavioral biases, uh, one of which um, potentially is, is overconfidence. I don't think I'm particularly confident necessarily, but people are on average overconfident. Um, there's quite a common example that people use is the question, do you think you're better than average at driving? Now, 90% of people are going to tell you that they're better than average at driving. And it's a 50-50 <laughs> statistic. So 40% of those people are going to consider themselves overconfident, uh, you know, better than they are. Yeah. And if you are overconfident and you have more conviction in your insights then you sometimes discount the likelihood that maybe you've got it wrong or what's the probability of things not turning out how you expect. And from a portfolio perspective, that means that you can end up owning large positions uh, in companies and which have all sort of very concentrated risks and also turning over your portfolio more than you should. Now, the way that we use technology to make us make more rational decisions to sort of double check that overconfidence or conviction in your stock views is by having quite a sophisticated uh, risk analysis framework. So we want to cut the risk of your portfolio or your exposures um, through many different lenses to say, stop, think, and make sure that the decisions and the weightings that you're placing or the amount that you own of a company is can measure it with the risk um, and your return expectations. Um, I wanted to ask, as well as having a, uh, a master's in mathematics from Oxford University, um, you're also a CFA charter holder. Um, so y- you would have had to answer questions on behavioral finance in your CFA exams, of course. Um, but how much understanding is there on this topic in the industry in general, would you say? And also, how important are events like you know we're here at today in sharing that knowledge? Yeah, I- I would say that knowledge is growing, but it's it's definitely not what the majority of people are, are doing. Um, I think 
last year, 2017, behavioural finance really had an amazing year. Uh, and you had a professor, uh, Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And in the same year, he also starred in The Big Short alongside Selena Gomez, which is unusual for <laughs> someone who spends their time thinking about how psychology fits into investing. Um, I think events like today are, are brilliant, whether you're an investor or um, someone who, who focuses on other areas of, of finance, because it really makes you stop and rethink um, your behaviours and your decisions, even if it's not in your day-to-day -day job. There's um, one example of a behavioural bias that I think always hits home to me. So it's called uh, home bias, in that people prefer things that they're more familiar with. And I have a guy who sits literally two up from me called John, and he's a big Arsenal supporter. Now, in fantasy football, you look at his uh, football team and he can justify exactly why the majority are in the Arsenal football club. And I've heard that this year is definitely the right decision, but we've been playing fantasy football on the desk for about 20 years. And he's just got this bias towards why you would own it and he can justify it. I was thinking about, well, how does this maybe affect other people? Maybe it affects people um, who invest only in one country. So maybe just put all your money in sort of UK companies because you're more familiar with it. And that's fine um, if all your expectations of future payments are going to be in the UK. But say if you have something like the UK referendum and your currency suddenly devalues by a good 10 12%, it's going to be more expensive to go on holiday and potentially where you'd allocated your assets it doesn't fit your future returns and isn't optimal if that makes sense yeah yeah um this is an example i've got three spurs players in my fantasy football team so uh, that that kind of <laughs> confirms that kind of decision making i guess because i'm a spurs fan not an arsenal fan but anyway all for another podcast and uh, for now philippa clough thanks so much for uh, joining us today Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I'm now joined by Christina Vasileva, uh, who is the Senior Lecturer in Finance at Westminster Business School. Um, we're now in the break here at the, uh, at the conference, so uh, the networking break, so it's got a little bit loud out here in the, uh, in the breakout area, um, so apologies for that. Um, Christina has just presented here at the conference um, asking the question, can we use big data to predict human behavior? Uh, so perhaps that's probably a good place uh, to start. Christina, I was, I was thinking maybe if you can just give a quick overview of what big data is for those listeners who may not be aware, but also how you can apply it in the uh, financial services industry. Hello. Uh, <laughs> big data is really um, the huge amounts of, of data that differ in um, type that's being gathered for each individual or market participant or it works at any level in the background for each company. So it, it's the huge amounts of data, data that are being gathered uh, from everyday operations of the company and added to that supplementary data from social media or other forms of interaction. And I guess um, it's now more and more important to consider how to analyze, process and use this data because there is a lot more of it and everything we do is captured digitally. So things that never used to be done in this way are now available in a, as, a, as a digital source. So sooner or later, somebody uh, will have to start using them to advance um, knowledge and, and science in general and 
in, in, in this kind of vein, um, financial services have actually used probably the most out of the other, compared to other industries, they probably have drawn on um, the big data they've gathered quite a bit to the extent that we have regulators uh, coming out saying recently the FCA, I read financial news that was coming out and saying that companies might not be using this data with the full consent of their um, the data owners, the customers or, or clients. Um, got various government bodies as well have voiced concern, as have people. But at the same time, um, uh, provided that proper consent is given, it could result in a better experience for all um, consumers out there. Okay. Well, thank, thank you for battling over the noise as it's getting even louder in here. But um, what I want to do is bring it back to the topic of the day. How do you then apply the use of big data in behavioral finance, which is mm -hmm. what we're talking about today? Um, it, it would probably be applied in the same way that it would in any other science, but specifically with behavioral finance, the main complaint, at least on the academic side, is that um, there is lack of data, as in lack of good data. So we've had to prove and um, analyze behavioral finance issues using um, data which is not necessarily suitable to capture human behavior, but because we now have all kinds of um, other resources through which we can capture data, we can use Google searches, we can use um, other actions that people do or how they interact with their um, financial products uh, to capture as aspects of human behavior which previously was just not possible. So for example, um, uh, there are several, um, I, I can bring up examples from a few different behavioral, well-known, well-established behavioral biases. For example, overconfidence. Um, overconfidence works on every level, so for every human being, it's one of the most robust findings. We all are prone to overestimating our skills or our abilities. And how do you capture this trait? Well, uh, there are several indicators which can be used um, that would show each investor that they're standing out from a general average. So for example, volume of trading or intensity of, of trading would be a very good indicator to show that might show that um, uh, you might be more prone to overconfidence than, than your peers. And companies would be ideally placed to, um, because they have access to this data and it's very easy for them to uh, process it um, so that quite quickly you're able to see if you are standing out from literally your peers. So it's not a market, it's not, it's people within your company. And um, that's one thing. Another uh, phenomenon would be the disposition effect, which is um, the tendency for investors to sell uh, winning stocks quicker than they sell losing stocks. So they hold on to losing stocks. And there is a lot of behavioral finance theory why we think this is happening. It's a combination of prospect theory and mental accounting. But ultimately, it's, it's very mm, straightforward to measure. Have you sold more stocks out of all stocks that have made a gain and the ones that you've um, kept and sold? 
and versus the same ratio for um, losing stocks. So there is no theoretical expectation why these two would be different. So why it shouldn't be 50-50 in a broad, large data set. But we observe that there is a difference. So if this could be some small indicator that's running in the background, in a, it could blend in with the rest of the financial indicators and it could serve to perhaps prompt investors or companies um, to investigate further if there is a deviation from the expectation, why is it happening? Is it justified? Is it something we can address or improve? So I'm not talking about this being used in a punitive way or to evaluate uh, performance for investors because I, I think it will have counteractive um, effects, but it can be used to improve, um, I guess, efficiency, operational efficiency for, for companies and investors. Okay. And so what does the future hold um, in this area? Um, I guess we can't, we can't ignore um, the existence of these large data sets because they would be difficult to implement or use for various legal and ethical reasons. I think the future is that more of this will be done with the consent, um, active consent um, to be used from either clients or employees or uh, to, in the name of improved uh, performance and efficiency. So I would hope that uh, because academics struggle with finding uh, unique data sets that are able to demonstrate these issues more clearly or more robustly, I think that if companies are able to provide more um, more of this data, anonymized of course, but if they're able to provide more of this data to academics, then we could achieve greater gains. So we would improve methodology, we would be able to prove, disprove what actually we think is happening versus what actually is happening. And also we would be able to improve um, uh, the, the, the quality of information we have to um, evaluate investments or, or I don't know, monitor our portfolios or it, it doesn't have to work only at a investor portfolio level. It works just as well with any kind of employee-employer sure. situation. Excellent. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining us straight after your, your talk in, in, in what has become a very, very busy breakout. Pleasure. Thank you. So thank, <laughs> thanks so much, uh, Christina, for that. Um, we are back after this quick message. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csweetpodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite Podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, here at the CFA UK Behavioural Finance Conference. Um, I'm delighted to be uh, now joined by Shweta Agravel, who is a member of BlackRock's Risk and Quantitative Analysis Group, uh, where she supports the behavioural finance and advanced analytics initiatives of the group. Before joining BlackRock, um, Shweta consulted on data-driven and behavioural science projects for fintech companies and worked as a behavioural quant consultant at Barclays Wealth. She also holds a PhD in Decision Sciences from the London School of Economics and an MSc in Mathematics from the University of Cambridge. So we feel she's pretty qualified to be talking to us today. Welcome to the podcast, Shweta. You've just presented um, on the topic behavioural finance in the man-machine equation. Can you give us a quick overview of uh, what you talked about? Sure. So in the talk, I talk about the human decision-making as a three-part system. So we've got the subconscious brain, which is many millions of years old and the conscious brain which is sort of 
less old comparatively. So the subconscious is 200 million years old, whereas the conscious is only 20 million years old. Now, the subconscious brain has evolved over many, many years. So it's in some sense very sophisticated, almost beyond our comprehension, and it survived the test of time. And it is, although we might think of the subconscious brain as being something that gets in the way of our decisions or emotions that kind of, you know, bias our decisions, it is in some sense quite essential for decision making. So there are studies that show that humans who have the emotional brain paralyzed struggle to make very basic decisions because they can't get a feeling for whether their decision is good or bad. Right. Now, in financial markets, it's been acknowledged that emotions actually drive asset prices. And there is a lot of research and there is plenty of um, literature that kind of points to how the observed asset prices actually depart from the fundamental, rational, expected price. And this is not, again, this is not just random. This, is, this can be explained if we look at the human tendency to herd, which is again something that is an evolutionary construct. So humans are social primates. They tend to kind of make decisions collectively. They mimic each other. And this is reflected in modern day society in fashion as well as in financial decision making. Right. And, and you touched on the, the fight or, f- or flight um, you know, sort of theory or, or, or well, examples, I, I suppose. Can you, can you just sort of expand on that a little bit? So the flight or fight system is essentially related to the reptilian brain, which is, again, a part of our subconscious. Now, the way the reptilian brain works is there are two nervous systems that cross the heart, if you like, and the activation in these two nervous systems determines the kind of physiological response to the environment. So there is the sympathetic state, which is an immediate response or a fight or flight response to the environment we are in. It's automatic. It is not deliberate. It does not optimize any information. It's very instinctual. And there is another nervous system, which is the parasympathetic state, which moderates this instinctual response to the environment. And it's the combination of these two which determines the physiological state of a person. Okay. now, one of the things that you talked about in the uh, in the presentation was this pilot project um, that you're running at BlackRock, um, which I was really interested in because you're you're actually monitoring the stress levels and the heart rates of members of your team, and then how this impacts on performance. Can you share any info on on how that's all working? Sure. So I mentioned the physiological response to the environment, and one way to sort of in- encode this is by looking at the stress levels of portfolio managers. Now stress comes in many different flavors. So we can have positive stress when both the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system are activated. And we can also have stress that is actually detrimental to performance. So what we can do, and thanks to sort of technology and the age of algorithms, we can actually monitor the heart rate variability which signal whether the portfolio manager is in a positive or negative stress level, if you like. This is a completely private project, completely voluntary, Mm. GDPR compliant, if you like, and the portfolio manager owns their data. It is never used to kind of evaluate whether whether a portfolio manager is good or bad, but it is 
intended with the purpose of enhancing performance. So we have volunteers who have kind of who are wearing devices to kind of help us track their heart rate variability, and then we kind of link that to their performance or they trade PNLs to feedback whether their sort of physiological state is helping or hurting their decision. Yeah. The, the reason I, fa- I found it quite fascinating was understanding the reaction about being monitored. I know you say it's, it's voluntary, but it's interesting. We, we've covered the topic of mental health on this podcast quite recently. One of the issues that's come up is that people, and this is especially actually in men, don't like to talk about their, their mental well-being, their, you, know, you know, how they're feeling at, at the time. Um, and, that, and that's particularly if they're stressed or anxious. And a lot of the, the, the talk, you're, 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 I know you mentioned positive stress, but obviously a lot of stress, is, as you said, is, is, can be detrimental. And, and the reason they often don't mention that is because there's a fear of being seen as weak um, or it being detrimental to their, you know, to their career progression. What, what's been the reaction of those people to being monitored in, you know, in this project? So I think one of the things that's worth mentioning is that it's not exactly uncommon to use heart rate monitors as a part of training or improving performance. So we see that in sports. So often the sports training is includes monitoring the heart rate variability. We see it in military. We see it in the medical sciences as well. So it's only in investing that this may feel like it's something new. So we don't want this to be intrusive to the portfolio managers. And we've kind of made that very clear. And we've and the portfolio manager, it's completely voluntary as well. Yeah. And I think it's also an inner drive from these portfolio managers to get better at what they're doing. And if we can bring valuable insights to the table, then they feel there is value in participating. Good. Yeah, excellent. Um, okay, I, I wanted to finish off, and given how much you, you refer to emotion in, in the talk, I want to bring this back to this man-machine equation and how much of our decision-making will be machine-driven in the future, do you think? So that's an interesting question because, yes, it is true that machines are sort of doing more and more of what humans were traditionally doing, and they will probably increasingly take on more of these sort of information processing tasks. And this is the right thing to do because machines are categorically better at processing information than humans. But they have a long way to go before they acquire the sophistication and intelligence of the human brain. So to think that, you know, humans will be out of business soon is probably a myth. Um, The field of AI is evolving and developing sort of computational models that mirror the brain, mirror the way the human brain is making decisions. And this is really, again, the way they do it is through a multidimensional analysis of the information coming their way. So there are actually experiments that show that emotions help decisions. And we can even program these emotions into robots and we see an enhancement in their performance. But a lot of the testing and programming is in very simple environments. And it remains to be seen if we can actually extend these to the complex environment and life as we know it. Right. So in the short term, I really think the value is in getting the humans to work alongside machines or together with machines. And the real trick is to figure out how this collaboration works, how humans sort of, how human biases don't come in the way 
of this collaboration so that we can actually get the best of the two species. Excellent. Uh, well, this has been um, fascinating stuff, but uh, and, and I'm sure there's loads more we can talk about it. But uh, for now, um, Shweta, thank you so much for uh, sharing uh, you know, some of your presentation with us today. Thank you. So joining me now for our final interview of this episode is Magda Osman, a reader in experimental cognitive psychology at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, Magda's main research interests uh, concern understanding the underlying mechanisms involved in learning, decision-making and problem-solving in complex dynamic environments. And we've grabbed some time with her before she delivers the closing keynote here today, uh, looking at an alternative thinking to the popular two system of decision-making outlined in Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, where system System one is fast, instinctive and emotional, and system two is slower, more deliberate and more logical. Um, Magda, perhaps we could start with just a quick recap of uh, what that and similar theories are based on. Uh, well, I think you've done a good job of uh, outlining some of the key distinctions. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is that there are lots of different flavours of this two system type way of describing the way we think. So um, some will attribute more sophisticated mechanisms to system one. So the Kahneman approach is one of many. Mm. Um, but overall, they're generally making a distinction, which is there's a system which is automatic and fast on some level, and the other which is slow, uh, potentially more rational. And often these two systems don't actually speak to each other. So the way we intuitively make sense of what we do is that we feel like something comes to mind very quickly. Um, and then if we actually spent more time reflecting on that, we might end up coming up with a different decision to the first one. So you can, one can see the appeal of thinking about the way we make decisions and judgments and reason and so on along those lines. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's just generally the kind of flavor of those kinds of approaches, um, which have been very popularized. But I, I guess you're going to be challenging all that in your talk today. That's, that's the basis of what you're going to be presenting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the idea is to say, well, while they have intuitive appeal, and you know, we tell ourselves stories about the fact that our mind is sort of divided into something that's rational and irrational, emotional and logical and so on. The sort of theoretical landscape, at least in the literature, and that spans psychology, behavioral economics, neuroscience, um, as well as the empirical evidence, um, over a quite long period of time now seems to um, challenge and conflict with these kinds of very general kind of claims. So the idea of the talk is to say, well, let's think about what the, if we took these claims to their logical conclusion, what are they implying? And let's look at some of the evidence base to see how well supported some of these claims are. And the idea for the talk also is to take a quite general approach to make it especially accessible to the audience mm. and then try to sort of present some of these key challenges and then try to think about alternatives to that. So it's not just, well, I'm poo-pooing <laughs> what's been done before, but also trying to bring something new to the table and say, well, what other better methods are there or frameworks for understanding the the mind and also the way we make decisions uh, can be used 
uh, in lots of applied contexts, so be it investment decision-making or managerial decision-making, medical decision-making. So there are other alternative models which don't rely on making this kind of distinction, this simple distinction between conscious and unconscious. So is there, is there a way of um, kind of relating this just to, you know, everyday circumstances? Um, well, actually, so uh, I start off the talk on exactly this point, which is to try to relate it to something that everyone does have some experience of. So, for instance, driving is an example where if you are well practiced in it and you do it every day, you often find people say, oh, you know, I got to the route at the end of the route and you know, I, I felt like I did this automatically. I have no idea how I got there. I do. Like, that all the, I find I do that all the time. Actually. <laughs> and uh, I, um, yeah, and then it's like, well, I hadn't even intended to get to that point. I wanted to go somewhere else. Um, so that often colloquially sort of feels like a really good example of automatic kind of processing. Now. Um, if you look into the actual experimental literature, so what that involves is um, getting people in driving simulators in the lab and you train them up to drive a particular route. Now, if you... So that's sort of well-practiced and highly familiar. Then you get them to actually do something else at the same time, something quite cognitively effortful, um, which sort of mimics some of the things that we sometimes do while we're driving. So we're not just driving, we're doing other things, even though we aren't necessarily supposed to do that. <laughs> um, so the empirical findings will tell you that actually um, if you get people to do a cognitively effortful task at the same time as they're driving... You can't do both things well enough that the performance of both is optimal. Right? So something has to give. So often what you find is that if you, if you engage people in a cognitively effortful task and you monitor how they're driving the route, they increase their chances of crashing. So what that tells you is that while we feel like uh, we're not actually paying attention consciously to the things that we're doing, even where we're doing something that's incredibly familiar to us, we actually need to spend some portion of our cognition, conscious cognition, monitoring the environment, um, tracking our speed, checking what's going on around us, the traffic and so on. So you can't do that without attending consciously to the environment. I mean, the, the, the most stark version of this is if it was done automatically, in effect, you'd be doing this in a coma mm. <laughs> and you can't. <laughs> so that's a sort of an, an everyday example. Yeah, good, good example. And, and so what about relating this to um, sort of examples within industry? So, you know, within investment and, or, or other industries too, maybe? So uh, one example I can give you, and this is sort of based on my own experiences now. So I work half of my time um, on a secondment to the government. Mm. And um, so one of the interesting uh, issues is how do we raise um, compliance of business? So generally businesses are compliant anyway, but how do we increase that? And what methods can we use? And one useful approach is rather to rather than saying, well, businesses sort of use a kind of system money approach, <laughs> then uh, the alternative is to say, okay, well, let's break down and characterise the processes that are involved. Um, what are their main incentives for um, compliance and non-compliance? Um, how are they incentivising ways? 
um, personally that conflict with regulation. So the motives of the enforcer and what they consider um, to be um, of interest to incentivize business don't perfectly align with the way business operate. And so it makes sense to try to deconstruct and characterize on a sort of much more sort of robust level how businesses operate, what kind of risk appetite they have, um, how that interacts with uh, their incentive structures and their value systems in order to build up a better understanding of what their uh, ma main operations are to then figure out ways of, well, how do we target compliance and raise that? Do we need to inform them more? Do we need to train them more? Do we need to make them aware of the consequences more? So all of that can be understood from frameworks that characterize decision-making from a value-based approach, which have really nothing to do with uh, sort of making this sort of very simple division of it's fast or slow yeah. <laughs> or yeah. unconscious or conscious or automatic or any of that kind of stuff. So, you know, the point there is to say this, this kind of framework is a, a very convenient way of trying to characterize let's say, biased decision-making. But when you understand the conditions under which decisions seem to look as if they're biased, um, there's a lot more going on than just something that's sort of automatically kicking in. And so um, in order to be able to try to essentially de-bias uh, decision-making processes, um, you need to characterize in more detail and profile the context in which people make decisions. And that's not something that these dual process type accounts say much about. And so there are other alternative models which do a better job of that. Right. There's clearly a lot uh, of uh, stuff that people can be reading up about and, and learning more about all this. If listeners do want to find out more information, where, where's the best place for them to go? <laughs> well, I might advocate my own website. I'm sure you will. <laughs> <laughs> As a start, including some of my own published work we'll, and books. We'll let, we'll let you give that a plug. What's the URL for that? <laughs> uh, it's magdaosman.co.uk. Perfect. That's great. Uh, Magda, thanks so much for joining the show. And in fact, that wraps up this podcast from the CFA UK's conference. So thanks to all my guests who took the time to chat to us today and to the team at CFA UK for inviting us back to interview their speakers. Don't forget, if you want to find out any more information about CFA UK or contact them, then the uh, simple web address is cfauk.org. We'd love to hear any comments you may have on this uh, topic on behavioral finance. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed or LinkedIn page which are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads via the likes of SoundCloud, iTunes and now Spotify too as well as all other podcast platforms and of course please do give us a positive rating and review when you do as that helps us up the uh, business podcast charts. Finally if you would like to get in touch with the show you can do that via the contact form on the website as well or you can reach me via Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye.